it's Muppeturgy, and you're always welcome at our house to discuss the Marisa Berenson episode of The Muppet Show. Yay! Hey everyone, welcome back. We're so glad you're here. I'm David Levy, and here today with me are... Christy Bauer. Michal Richardson. And Adam Grossworth. Here is a Muppet News Flash! We are jumping right in this week to discuss Season 3, Episode 10 of The Muppet Show. It was produced the week of April 18th, 1978, and it aired in New York on December 18th, 1978. It was number 14 in the air order after Gilda Radner. In the news this week, the New York Times is back, at least for a bit in our weirdo timeline. And the news is not... Great. We've got some more Jonestown stuff and some bombings in Britain and Jerusalem, and I don't want to talk about any of that. Um, Scrolling through the paper, the one fun headline I spotted was, Device to End Shoplifting Sets Off a Health Dispute. Does it kill you? Oh, the past. I mean, we're all here, so no. (laughs) We walk through them every time we go shopping. Oh, I see. Um, Yeah, I guess those scanners use microwaves, and people were really worried about microwaves in the past. Some people are still worried about microwaves in the present. Yeah, but now we call those people crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we're hungry. I just, I mean, I realize there are people who are very worried about Bluetooth and 5G and chemtrails and whatever. But like, if the people of 1978 had any idea how many (laughs) waves and signals and things would be bouncing around (laughs) in the air just a few short years later, yikes. But yeah, so that was a thing. On the Cashbox pop charts, the number one song is La Freak by Chic. And the number one album is 52nd Street by Billy Joel. Oh my goodness. Grease is knocked out. Uh, Grease was knocked out at some point, but you know, remember we're jumping around. So we've, we've, yeah, we've looked ahead weird. several weeks from our last episode. Number two, relevant to our interests, is A Wild and Crazy Guy by Steve Martin. And I just think it's bonkers that a comedy album was the number two record in America. Relevant to our personal interests, but not The Muppet Show, the number three album was Barbara Streisand's Greatest Hits, Volume 2. And just because we're recording this the week of Olivia Newton-John's death, and also because it has been a running gag, um, Grease is still on the charts uh, at number five. Still the word. Still the word, just slightly lower. Um, But Olivia, we miss you. On television... On CBS, after The Muppet Show was A Charlie Brown Christmas, which I'm pretty sure we talked about last season, because I think that just aired on Mondays near Christmas. Um, But the ad this year, um, just the copy on the ad was funny to me. Charlie, Lucy, Snoopy, and the gang get in the holiday spirit, but gentle Linus comes bearing the greatest gift of all. (laughs) Pedantry. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, three things just struck me about this. Uh, gentle Linus, I just found hilarious for some reason. I don't yeah. know why. It sounds like part of a limerick. Yeah. They were saying holiday as early as 1978 on an explicitly Christmas and pretty Jesus-y program. Yeah. Gentle Linus brings the, the Jesus part, right? Yes. Maybe they just didn't want to say Christmas twice in the ad. But like, I don't know, like, this is a thing in our politics today. And it's like, you guys, it's not new. Um, and then down at the bottom of the ad is a little picture of Woodstock holding the logos for Peter Paul and Coca-Cola, which I understand is how TV works. But given how the Charlie Brown Christmas special ends, I thought it was pretty funny. That's the true meaning of Christmas. Yeah. The true meaning of Christmas is our corporate sponsorships. That was followed by the animated special Twas the Night Before Christmas. 
And that was followed by the MASH episode, Dear Sis, which was one of their more famous Christmas episodes. It's uh, one of the ones where Father Mulcahy writes a letter home. And just worth noting that MASH had more Christmas episodes than the Korean War had Christmases. (laughs) (laughs) And they were all beautiful. They were all, I can't say that with certainty, but many of them were quite good. The ones I've watched were beautiful. Yes, I, I, I really like MASH. I watched it all the time. All the time. Okay. Um, um, I'll make that joke again when we get to Loretta Sweat. Yeah. On NBC, Little House on the Prairie episode entitled The God Sister. Please tell us what this was about. Do I have to? Because I did watch it and <laughs> have some regrets. Uh, it's all about Carrie, the toddler child, feeling neglected and so she and she's off by herself a lot because the path they're literally like Carrie go to the woods which is actually fucking amazing um and she goes off and um basically invents an imaginary friend who is her fairy god sister and because she was played by twins she gets you know it, there, there there's two of her in the episode and it is it is atrocious like it is just, <laughs> just like these two children and i i don't even want to say that they're bad actors but they're just like this perfectly insipid pitch of child like she's like i don't know five maybe it's just it's real bad and then like there's these fantasy sequences because it's all these dreams that she's having and it's terrible and then the other half of the episode is that charles is off um, helping to install the telephone line that's going to end up running to Walnut Grove. And that's sort of interesting historically, but then there's like a real terrible Irish caricature and that goes to some strange places, but that at least is like, Oh, this is little house as I remember it. But yeah, I saw the title and was like, what? <laughs> and so I watched it and please don't watch it. That was followed by our movie of the week, the deer slayer, which is based on a novel by James Fenimore Cooper, Alice Cooper's sister. <laughs> James Fenmore Cooper, son of William Cooper, founder of Cooperstown, New York. Yes. The very same. And featuring the character of Hawkeye, for whom Hawkeye Pierce from MASH was named. So, you know, also. all connected. On ABC, 2020 is on, which is only notable because it was not normally on on Monday nights. Um, and it premiered earlier in 1978 and is still on today. So, you know. Good, good job, 2020. And on Channel 11 here in New York City, so that this was syndicated, uh, the Julie Andrews special Merry Christmas with Love, featuring Jimmy Stewart, Steve Lawrence, but not Edie Gourmet, Joel Gray, Carl Reiner, Rich Little, and Alice Ghostly. Tonight's special guest star is the beautiful international film star, Miss Marisa Berenson. Marisa Berenson, actress, model, socialite, and despite her absolutely perplexing accent, American. But she's an Wait, international really? film star. That's what Kermit just said to explain her accent, I guess. She was born in New York in 1947 into one of those families that had generations of wealth and status to the point that it was probably inevitable that she would wind up as an actress, model, and socialite with an unplaceable accent. Her father was a diplomat and an executive with Aristotle Onassis's shipping company. Her mother was also a socialite, the daughter of famed fashion designer Elsa Schiaparelli. Marisa's younger sister was Barry Berenson, herself also an actress, model, photographer, and socialite, who was famously married to actor Anthony Perkins. They also have, like, lots of famous people in their extended family. If you're interested, go look at her Wikipedia page. Marisa was discovered as a teenager by Vogue editor Diana Vreeland, friend of the family, who launched Marisa's modeling career. 
Among her achievements in the pages of that magazine, Marisa was the first to appear nude in Vogue. In the 60s, she got into transcendental meditation and spent time in an ashram in India with George Harrison and Ringo Starr. She credits this spiritual quest, along with her very proper upbringing, with keeping her on the straight and narrow throughout the 60s and 70s, despite being immersed in the sex and drugs world of artists and models. She's had a long and varied acting career, but really it's her first three films that made the biggest impact. They were Death in Venice, Cabaret, and Barry Lyndon. She married James Randall in 1976, and they had a daughter, Starlight Melody Randall, in 1977. That marriage ended in 1978, and Marisa turned her attention away from aggressively pursuing her acting career in order to be a mother, although she did continue to act, and that grew with increasing frequency as Starlight got older. She would marry again in the 80s to Aaron Richard Golub, although that marriage would also end after five years with sort of a spectacularly messy divorce. Uh, in 2001, her sister, Barry Berenson, died as a passenger on one of the planes involved in the September 11th attacks. Marisa herself was on a flight into New York that day, and she was one of thousands of people diverted to Newfoundland. Uh, and honestly, everything about her vibe makes me surprised that she isn't a character and come from away. <laughs> These days, she lives in Marrakesh. She's still acting and modeling when the right project comes her way. Uh, and, you know, everything that I've seen about her, read about her, watched about her, she just seems like a lovely, chill, and remarkably grounded person, despite coming from the background that she comes from. So good for her. You know, it's funny. I uh, Cabaret is a movie I've seen many, many, many times. I've only seen the first half of Barry Lyndon, and she's only in the second half, uh, um, which is not a commentary on the film other than the fact that it is very long, and I went to see it in a movie theater, and it started really late, and there's an intermission, and we were tired, and we had to go home. Um, uh, and I've seen a few of her other films. She's in SOB, which was uh, the Julie Andrews shows her boobies movie, uh, and some others. So, uh, you know, she's always been sort of someone I've known about, but honestly, before getting ready to record this episode, I'm not sure that I could have named her, and I certainly couldn't have told you anything about her. So I'm wondering if any of you have Marisa Berenson thoughts, feelings, memories. I know Adam does. Yes. So Marisa Berenson made her Broadway debut, and I think her only Broadway appearance, in a production of Noel Coward's Design for Living at the Roundabout, on which I was a production assistant. So I, in fact, have worked with Marisa Berenson. Uh, if you're keeping count, that's the second Muppet Show <laughs> guest star who I have had the pleasure and privilege of working with. Sure. Um, I, I cannot really claim to know her. Design for Living is a weird play in that it is basically a three-person play, and then for some reason there's a party scene, which is part of why it's not produced very often. And so Marisa was one of the party guests. And so, um, and I, I was also not an important person in this production. So, you know, so she was in one scene. She wasn't around a lot. I cannot say I ever had a real conversation with her, but I remember her being really lovely. Uh, like, like you said, everything you said about the vibe you get from her, David, is uh, completely accurate in my recollection of spending some time in the same building as her. She was lovely. She was stunning and, you know, totally professional. And, uh, like nothing but good memories of being generally near her is <laughs> what I would say about her. That's good to know. Just given that everything we've learned about her and her family this week sounds like it was written by Wes Anderson and was beautiful and dysfunctional. I'm glad she was beautiful and functional. He's beautiful and functional. She's still stunning. Cabaret is my only association with her. And I, I think she's sort of a, 
lesser part of that movie. Like I sort of have to remind myself that she's in it, <laughs> but I was excited to get to see her do something else. I actually, um, I rewatched Cabaret this week because we were doing this episode. I mean, and it's a movie I've seen several times, but you know, her storyline is, is one of the ones that was fully created for the movie versus the stage play. I, I don't know the novel. So, you know, no one at me on that. Um, but uh, it's, so, so, so it's sort of easy if, if, if you know the stage musical really well and you, it's easy to kind of forget that that entire plot exists. And, and I sort of had to, and, and she's also not in it a ton, but she is really good uh, in it. And I was sort of struck by that. Cause I sort of think of her as a model first and an actor second. And um, she, she's quite good. And you know, she's holding her own with some, some really sort of legendary actors. Yeah. It was a, a pleasure to revisit that for a lot of reasons, but, but her scenes, uh, among them. Michal, overall impressions. What'd you think of the episode? So this is a super solid episode. There's so much funny in it, and the plot sews everything together at the end. We get to explore Kermit and Piggy's relationship and their characters. Marisa Berenson, as mentioned, is a mind-bogglingly attractive person, and she seems just so delighted by Muppets every time she's on screen. I can't quite let go of how Miss Piggy is written to be just so single-mindedly marriage-oriented. And if you can set that aside, I think that this episode makes the leap from just very solid to a standout episode or even a great episode. And for me, it's just very solid. Yeah, I I agree with you 100%. I, I liked it. I, I wish that the uh, there isn't a ton of stage business because the 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 plot is so all consuming, which, which is a thing I like, but I, I also wish that the numbers were more appealing to me. And I wish that Marisa Berenson had been given more to do, but she is so delightful and seems so happy to be there, which bumps it up a notch for me. Christy. Yeah, I agree with all of that. I, I think very solid is a really good assessment of this. It's, I think really indicative of how the bar has lifted over the course of a couple of seasons, because like, I think again, I think in season one, this would have been like a major highlight episode and, you know, and, and it's, it's fun and it's good, but I, I think compared to other things in season three, I'm like, it's, it's fine. But yeah, I, I just think the, the quality level, I think they, they just leveled up considerably. So it's nice. David. Ditto. <laughs> Great. <laughs> I just realized I, I have I have been in the same place as Marisa Berenson. I went to a 40th anniversary. So this year's the 50th anniversary of Cabaret. I went to a 40th anniversary screening of Cabaret that TCM hosted at the Ziegfeld 10 years ago. Oh, I went to that too. We didn't know each other yet. Aww. That's so funny. <laughs> yeah, but I had to look up whether or not she was there because I only remember Joel Gray and Liza and Michael York being there and she was there. I, she must not have said a whole lot. I, but I think, you know, Liza was probably the draw for most people. <laughs> yeah. In the show notes, though, we'll have a video of her doing press related to that anniversary uh, where she does. Uh, I think she does like a very good job of being charming uh, while answering like totally kind of softball dumb dumb questions. So I, I liked it. <laughs> I'm sure she's very good at just sitting radiantly and being very gracious. Yeah. Oh, Scooter, who does all this luggage belong to? Oh, didn't you know? It's a gift to you from the show. 
Now, wait a minute. This isn't some kind of weird Muppet luggage that's going to blow up or turn into cheese like everything else on this strange show. No, no, no. It's just regular alligator luggage. Oh, good. Oh, oh no. <laughs> what if alligator on the Muppet show is like the way that we would use ass to qualify something? It's just regular alligator luggage. <laughs> <laughs> Just hearing that scooter delivery just now, I my, my mind went to places. Just regular dash alligator luggage. Anyway, the regular alligator luggage uh, has teeth and attacks Marie's Berenson. And she does what she seems to do best, which is to be absolutely delighted by Muppets. Also, you guys, blow up or turn into cheese is my, my whole entire brand. That's- <laughs> yeah, she telegraphs how she's going to be throughout the entire episode in this moment. She's very giggly and just so happy to be there. And uh, it it sets a nice tone. Yeah, with the inexplicable accent. It's so weird. <laughs> Do you think she was educated in multiple places abroad? She must have been. Anyway, she's lovely. <laughs> um, also in the opening, Statler and Waldorf are pondering, as I'm sure you out there in Muppeturgy land ponder around this time, uh, maybe after the summary of Little House on the Prairie, <laughs> around this time every week. You asked me to do it. I know. I, I love it when you talk about it. I'm sure all our listeners do too. Why don't we leave? Where would we go? There we Just go. It's like the Ingalls. <laughs> that, that was like a long wind up to a short pitch. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> it's been a long wind up to a short weekend. Listeners, we must briefly revive our yay Bureau of Investigations to report to you that there is no yay this week. Just that uh, Kermit doing that silent grin nodding thing. That's fine. He does yay at the end. That's true. So the Gonzo bit, I think, is recycled. I couldn't find any official evidence on the wiki, but Gonzo attempts to blow his trumpet and then Kermit intercepts. From behind him with a different trumpet. Oh, definitely recycled. I didn't. Yeah. The first time, didn't he come up behind him? Didn't Kermit sneak up behind him, and this time he comes in from the side? I don't know. We'll have to compare and contrast and report back. Yeah, I didn't have time to actually figure out which episode it was in last time and look at it. Yeah, we're sorry. It's a dick move from any angle. Yeah, I mean it's it's the same it's the same concept, even if it's not the same blocking. And the same like very visible rod on the trumpet. Yes. <laughs> so maybe it is the same. Yeah, I'm up at your backstage. So backstage this week, we've got two different plot lines that converge nicely at the end. It's the debut appearance of New Zealand. We've been seeing the puppet this season, but this is the first time we see the character. New Zealand of the Boomerang Fish Act. And for whatever reason, Kermit is just not interested in booking a Boomerang Fish Act. And he tells New Zealand this repeatedly. Yeah, well, but I, I don't care about boomerang fish acts. Oh, you will! You're coming back! <laughs> Every time. Yeah, it's the best line in the episode. It was so interesting to me to see Lou in his first appearance because, first of all, this early Lou Zealand puppet is rough-looking. He's made of the whatnot, as Michal said, that we've seen a few times already. And it's pretty clear that they didn't intend to keep him. His hair is off, his eyes are off. Most notably, his collar attaches to his shirt in a different way, so we're constantly seeing his chest, which we don't see with the later New Zealand public, and that just disturbed me. I'm not sure why. And his mustache is real bushy and weird. Like, I, I actually, I, I did a, a Google image search just to remind myself of what latter-day New Zealand looked like, because there were just things about it that I just, I was like, 
He has a mustache, I think, but it doesn't look like that. Yeah, it doesn't look like that. This is the the whatnot that that I think was bothering me a few weeks ago. That I said like his mouth looked really weird, and the mustache helps. Like as Luzila, I'm like, oh, it's Luzila. Like it doesn't it doesn't bug me in the way that it it was bugging my. Yeah, not disagreeing with anything you guys are saying that he's going to look better later, but but his his evolution from what not to New Zealand, a positive is, step is, all around. Step, yes. Yeah, he's on his way. Weirdly, he's one of the C string characters who's appeared in every major or even sort of major Muppet production since, even the Lady Gaga holiday special, even Holy Moly, uh, not Kermit Swamp Years, however. Uh, but he's been in every Muppet movie. He's been in like all of the specials, like this like one joke throwaway character just <laughs> throw away <laughs> yeah uh, well came throw him away, but then he comes back to you <laughs> in every <Muppet> production. <laughs> uh incidentally that line about they're coming back was my biggest laugh out loud laugh in this episode well deserved so if you're wondering about why he talks that way lou's voice and that accent is after uh comedian i was gonna say famous comedian but i don't know that i'd call him a famous comedian Anyway, it's after the comedian Frankie Fontaine, who's best remembered, if he's remembered at all, as Crazy Guggenheim on the Jackie Gleason show. <laughs> Hi, I'm Crazy Guggenheim. Uh, and he's someone who did appear with the Muppets in a pilot in 1962. So he definitely knew Jim and Jim knew him. So that's interesting. Um, and presumably uh, Jerry as well, who is the one who's actually puppeteering. Also of note, Frankie Fontaine died in between when this episode was produced and when it aired. So I have no idea if he ever got to see this tribute that became like a lasting and beloved part of the Muppet legacy. So exactly. Meanwhile, on the other side of this plot, Kermit has actually delegated something. He has successfully put Miss Piggy in charge of this week's closing act. And she's got some big plans. I just want to know more about this wedding sketch. I mean, I've got to learn my lines. Well, you only have one line. I do? Exactly. That's not what I mean. Besides, the thing you forget is that I don't. Kermit, it's just a simple comedy sketch. Oh, yeah, well, I know that. A comedy sketch, Kermit. It's not as if you were a real minister. Now you are a real minister, right? Piggy is also hiding a pig minister in her dressing room. During that dialogue, she um, is walking up the stairs uh, to the dressing rooms, which I'm not sure we've seen a puppet do before. We've seen humans do it. We've and seen puppets on this. We've stairs. seen puppets on them. Yeah. But she does a, she walks fully up them and then turns the corner. Um, and there's an edit in between, but it's so seamlessly done because it's done with the dialogue. So it cuts back to Kermit and then back to her. And it's just one of those great like TV magic moments. Um, sort of like when she leapt off the balcony a few weeks ago. <laughs> it's just, it was so beautifully done. And and it just, it, you know, especially we were complaining uh, last week about the direction that it was, it was nice to sort of have one of those happen this week. Could anybody tell what was on Kermit's desk? There are new. This is such a me question. There are <laughs> there, there were new props on Kermit's desk. One of them was thumbtacks. Like okay. there was like a red box of thumbtacks. Uh, I'm not sure what the other one, but I would assume it was something like paper clips. Yeah, it was a similar box, so probably paper clips. Yeah, it was just like the 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 70s ness of it. I was like, what are those boxes? I must know. There was also like a, a like a perfume bottle or yeah, something. yeah, I saw that too. 
I was only looking at the characters, I guess. I did not look at the desk for a second. Well, like I said, a very me question. <laughs> Meanwhile, in the canteen, uh, the Swedish chef is making a wedding cake out of onions. You know, I have to take one look at this wedding cake and I feel like crying. Heaven knows why. Oh, well, that's for, for the cake and the onions. You what? Onions. Raw onions and a wedding cake? Oh, yeah. Onions be good for the scene <laughs> he squeezes his nose while he says that. Yeah, onions are good for the sinuses. Why wouldn't you make a cake out of them? If he's if the, he baked the wedding cake, the onions aren't raw anymore. How do you know he baked it? Fair point. He's just decorating it. Uh, so I just enjoyed this tidbit from the wiki. The the he's decorating the cake. Uh, he's finishing it off with um, cake toppers of Kermit and Piggy, uh, as you do because it's a wedding. Um, and they were commercially available toys, and uh, they were repainted to be. To, to be in wedding clothes and the Kermit figure is a pencil topper. Aww. Excellent. Yeah. Just thought that was cute. Good, good resourcefulness. Muppet people. Yeah. In the great tradition of repainting toys. Good for them. This goes on throughout the episode after just enough hijinks to confirm Kermit's suspicions that this is not just any old comedy sketch. The wedding scene is ready to go on. Hey, Kermit. There's this dear little old lady in the audience who wants your autograph for her sick grandson. Sign here. Oh, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hey, listen, is everything ready for this dumb wedding sketch? Sure. The set's on stage. Everyone's in costume. You mm-hmm. sign the license. Uh, you sign the autograph. <laughs> oh, nothing. Uh, just go ahead. Introduce the wedding. <laughs> I misheard that the first time I watched it as wanting it for a, a sick ransom. <laughs> Dude, that's a sick ransom. <laughs> I was really confused. Kermit knows what he's in for, and he still goes through with it. I, I don't know. We can talk about his motivations in a bit. The wedding scene itself looks lovely. There's a frog side, plus Fozzie on, on Kermit's side, and there's a pig side, and the pigs have adorable hats. Offstage, Marisa Berenson and Animal are shedding tears. I guess everyone cries at weddings. <laughs> No cries at weddings. Yeah. And then finally, Kermit is faced with the cue for his one line that he didn't even have to memorize, and he goes wildly off script. I... I... I want to introduce to you the amazing Lou Zealand and his boomerang fish! That was my biggest laugh of the episode. It was, I mean, it was quite a turn. There's chaos, there's mayhem, boomerang fish are flying, and they're also coming back. Are they coming back? It was not clear to me if they were actually coming back. They're being caught, like, one flies at Marisa Berenson offstage, and I I mean, New Zealand keeps claiming the fish come back to him, but they also land on people, so. Yeah, there's a great Mm. shot of Wayne gets smacked in the face with one. Yeah, he's trying to sing, and then he gets a fish to the mouth. And Piggy is chasing Kermit around for the whole rest of the episode, right through the outro. And uh, as Marisa Berenson points out, this is now a comedy sketch after all. Thank you, Kermit. <laughs> Listen, Marisa, I'm going to have to rush. Uh, would you mind saying goodnight for me? <laughs> me? Mm-hmm. How exciting. Exciting? Marisa, you ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> what do I say? 
Uh, we'll just say, uh, we'll see you next time. Come on! We'll see you next time. So on the Muppet Show. On the Muppet Show. So that's how that goes. Miss Piggy tries to trick Kermit into marriage and fails. That's the backstage plot. I know I have feelings about it and I'm not sure what to say. I think that my way of understanding Miss Piggy's marriage obsession is that because they still have one foot in the, this is a show for kids realm, they can't have her lusting after Kermit's body. And so this is the way to sort of sublimate that. I think it's more, this is how male writers know how to write a female character. I mean, yes, that too. This is where I pose the question of, you know, canon vis-a-vis the movies. (laughs) Because this is the exact same tactic that uh, that Piggy pulls at the end of Manhattan Melodies and Muppets Take Manhattan. Makes me real uncomfortable there, too. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, also, that's a more romantic movie. It's a different storyline about who they are and what their relationship is. Sure. I mean... I, I would uh, encourage any listeners who are interested to explore the Muppet Wiki page. Are Kermit the Frog and Miss Piggy married? There is a lot of documentation um, across both the uh, canon Muppet productions and also many, many talk shows where Piggy will claim that they are either engaged or married and Kermit will claim that they're not. Sometimes both at the same time, sometimes just one or the other. Uh there's a long history there. Yeah. I don't want to go too far down this road because what I'm about to say is stupid. But what is Piggy's endgame here? Like, even if she were to succeed, Kermit does not want this. He is under no obligation to go home with her. He will get this marriage annulled. <laughs> like, it's not... I don't think you understand the sanctity of marriage. <laughs> Like, it's a sacrament, and once it's been done, there is no getting around it. And Piggy is violating it by entering it without consent. Adam, Adam, in the history of marriage, when has consent really ever played a part? I'm not even sure where to go with that. I mean, whatever fiction Piggy is spinning in her head, this is a real wedding, and it's beautiful, and everyone is blissful and consenting, and... Part of that involves everybody happily going home with their spouse afterwards and living happily ever after. I think that's her end game is that marriage means that Kermit wants to be with her now. And she knows that Kermit is a deeply religious frog. (laughs) (laughs) And that even if he's tricked into marriage, once that sacrament has been performed, he's at the very least going to give it the old college try. That's just logic. (laughs) That's just the facts of life. That's right. When a frog and a pig love each other very much or are married under duress. Also, I'm not convinced that Kermit understands what's going on until he's on stage and freaks out. I mean... You would think, but even Scooter... Listen, Kermit's never seen The Muppet Takes Manhattan, so (laughs) he has less context for this than we do. Even though Scooter says the thing about the license and also fully holds up the entire document for him to see when he's signing it, I don't think Kermit catches on. Maybe he's folded it over such that it's just an X to sign here. No, no, that's what he should do, but we can see him. That's not what he does. (laughs) Scooter is not smart, and I think 
in this episode, neither is Kermit. Yeah, even if Kermit is not that smart, he definitely knows what he's in for or suspects it. Yeah, he gets there. He gets there in time. It, it is the important part. Enough to get New Zealand the debut that he's been pining for, but not give Miss Piggy the sanctity of marriage that she's pining for. I don't know. That she's fishing for. There you go. <laughs> So much like the accent of uh, this week's guest star, we have some music of questionable international provenance. (laughs) (laughs) It was educated abroad. On our show, we've done traditional dances from many countries, but never Russia. Well, tonight their luck has run out. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. So our opening number is a a bunch of pigs dancing to Russian folk song, work song, songs in a Derek Scott medley. So disturbingly, the Disney Plus... (laughs) Captions refer to all of the lyrics of this as sings gibberish. So, um, I, well, I, I think I, that's I, accurate. I don't think they're singing actual Russian. It sounds very Swedish chef to me. They also refer to many, many songs, including the Swedish chef singing as upbeat folk music. Yeah. Whatever this is, it's not upbeat folk music. Yeah. So, okay. So there are, are two songs in this that, uh, can be identified. This this first one is uh, called Polyushka Polya. It's it's not actually a folk song per se. It's from 1933. It was uh, the music was written by Liv Knipper and the lyrics by Victor Gusev, and uh, it was part of a bigger symphony with chorus called A Poem About a Komsomol Soldier, and. The original lyrics of it uh, were sung from the perspective of a Red Army recruit who proudly leaves his home to keep watch against his homeland's enemies. You know, for kids. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I don't know that they're necessarily singing the Russian, but... Uh, it, it, uh, yeah, it's just, it's hard to talk about. This whole thing is hard to talk about. Because uh, <laughs> it's, you know... Well, because the whole joke is, aren't other cultures hilarious yeah i mean in this instance when it's pigs dancing in fake snow that is in fact hilarious if you can set aside whether or not you should be offended on behalf of russia i mean if they are in fact singing gibberish and not the actual russian that's less hilarious yeah i realize we're not we're not fond of russians right now and they were not fond of the soviets in 1978 but still yeah, so let, let's hear the the second song that it pivots to. So that one is a uh, song of the Volga boatmen. The R- Russian title sort of actually translates to "Yo heave ho." This one is actually from the public domain. Uh, it uh, was published in a book of folk songs in 1866. Shout out to the public domain. It was sung by barge haulers on the Volga River. 
So, you know, fun, cheerful stuff. Weirdly, a version of this was recorded by Glenn Miller and his orchestra, and it went to number one in 1941. <laughs> ah, the past was wild. The time was mob. <laughs> tell you when i said to alexa hey alexa play the song of the volga boatman it did play the glenn miller clip and not the traditional version mm-hmm. which i think speaks to again it's boppiness yeah no it's it's fun but- this also i feel like is a tune that people are probably familiar with because it's just it had sort of a ubiquity in pop culture for a while i think like it was like a common cartoon cue to evoke a certain mm-hmm. kind of like workaday weariness. Yeah. That's true. I did find myself thinking that if this were made 20 years later, that they would have used the Tetris theme at some point. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I think this, I think this is in Tetris, isn't it? Is it? I is think there it. more than just the Tetris theme in Tetris. Yeah. yeah. There's oh yeah. Different levels have different theme songs. Well, then maybe it is. I guess I just never got that far in Tetris. There is some really nice puppetry in this. Uh, especially, I noticed at, at one point, the I don't know how to describe this dance, but um, one of the pigs is doing that sort of like, you know, arms folded, knee bendy <laughs> Russian dance. Now uh-huh. I'm being culturally insensitive. Um, I think you're and, being appropriately descriptive. Thank you. Um, and the, there are points when we see the pig's legs, but this is not one of them, right? He, the, he, the, he's, the frame cuts him off at the waist. And the way he's moving, like it, it, he's really, it looks like he is doing, you know exactly what he's doing, even though you can't see his legs. The movement is really perfect and it's just a great bit of puppetry and I really liked it. But then there's like 10 more minutes on this number. <laughs> it made me chuckle. Yeah, it it's, it's cute, but it goes on way too long. Yeah. Oh, there goes Detente. Where? <laughs> Never mind. I feel like I mean this is not new, but they've really perfected in this episode the um the the uh Statler and Waldorf dynamic of like Waldorf being kind of a dummy and Statler being fully exasperated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> really enjoyed it nice. every time it happened. So our next number goes to uh I I would call it somewhere in between like Juliet Prow's ballet and Mumenshan's territory. <laughs> With a, just a touch of zoom background. So if you haven't seen the episode and you were 
trying to guess what's happening while that music is playing. I have a feeling you could not conjure it. <laughs> You'll never guess. <laughs> if you try it. It's uh, Marisa Berenson dancing with a gaggle of feather boas. And it's fun. Uh, is it? Yeah, I got for a bit. Well, I was going to say I got no problems with it. I've only got a couple of minor quibbles with it. I think when we watched this at home, and we watched it twice this week, both times this was Keith's favorite part of the episode, and he said it reminds him of what a drag show in a David Lynch movie might look like. (laughs) That's fair. (laughs) That's a good reason Uh, to enjoy it more than I did. Sorry. (laughs) That's all. Do any of you watch Big Mouth? Yes, although I don't know that I'm up to date with it. You don't have to be. Yeah, though you might you might wish you were i don't know do, do you, you know how the hormone monster um has his little pet penises <laughs> that's what oh, the boas reminded no. me of when they were walking in a little a little kick line yep <laughs> that's once, fair once i saw it i couldn't unsee it and then it was just all over from there yeah anybody who's trying to guess what's on screen was never going to guess that the music to me feels on the one hand, very reminiscent of the score that Stephen Sondheim wrote for Stavisky, uh, which was a French film from around the same era as Borsellino, which is also a French film. It also feels vaguely like the score to Cabaret, which I wonder if that's why they chose this for this episode. Yeah. So let's talk about the, the music itself. It's a piece of music called Borsellino. It's the theme from the film Borsellino. And it was written in 1970 by Claude Bowling, who's a really interesting figure. He only just died in 2020. And he was a prolific jazz pianist and composer who wrote music for over 100 films. Uh, But notably, he recorded an album in 1975 called Sweet for Flute and Jazz Piano with a classical flutist named Jean-Pierre Rampal that stayed on the Billboard classical charts for over a decade. Like the New York Times obituary referred to it as like the like dark side of the moon of the classical charts. <laughs> and Borsellino itself, which I would never have guessed from this music, uh, was a gangster movie. Uh, it was a French gangster movie directed by Jacques Deray and starring Alain Delon, uh, Jean-Paul Belmondo and Catherine Rubel. And yeah, it was based on a couple of real life gangsters who, uh, and this was apparently not part of the movie, uh, were, collaborated with the Nazis during the occupation of France in World War II. Uh-huh. Woof. Yeah. Um, this was just about their other gangster exploits. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Sure. Uh, so the thing that was sort of weird about this to me is Marisa Berenson's wearing this outfit where she looks like the Jane Seymour character in the movie Somewhere in Time. And I only just recently saw this movie and I, <laughs> I'm i obsessed with this movie because it is fully bonkers. I <laughs> Go on. Have you seen this movie? No. Haven't we talked about it before? You and I have talked about this. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Not uh, on the podcast. Yeah. Yeah, so so this movie is from 1980, and in it, Christopher Reeve is a future Muppet show uh, guest star. Christopher Reeve is a modern day playwright who, through a series of events, wills himself into the past because of 
<laughs> an old lady gave him a pocket watch and he ends up having like a three-day affair with a, the Jane Seymour character and then gets yanked back into the past and starves himself to death. And that's the movie. Oh, <laughs> Dolly. I just imagined the this as a deleted scene from somewhere in time in which the Jane Seymour character drops some acid. <laughs> that would explain her transparent hair. Yeah. I cannot get over the hair thing. Because even back in the day, it would have been visible. I don't think we said this thing is chroma keyed because that's how you do the boas, right? It's puppeteers in black or, you know, some other color that are then digitally removed. And there's a backdrop. There's like a painted backdrop also. And uh, particularly in close up, though, when I watched it a second time, I noticed it in the wide shots. Also, you can just fully see through Marisa Berenson's hair. It also disappears in the chroma key. And I found it so weird and distracting, like a like a bad zoom background when you're you're like in a meeting and somebody like moves their 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 hand and their whole arm disappears. Mm-hmm. I chose to think of it as giving her a ghostly effect and thinking that maybe it was purposeful. I suspect that they shot it on black instead of on green or blue, and maybe that was it was actually meant to stay on black, and they decided to add the backdrop later. That's probably right. Yeah. Did you like that number? Pick up! My hearing aid's busted! Did you like that number? I liked what I heard! What did you hear? Did you like that number? So, I feel like David willed our UK spot this week into existence. (laughs) Thought about that. (laughs) I literally wrote that in the notes. I'm a little frog who's lost in a wood I know I could always be good To one who'll watch over me Although I may not be the man some girls think of as handsome It's someone to watch over me. Not over me, personally. It's a, it's a Gershwin song. It's a George and I Gershwin song from 1926. Shout out to the, I think, almost public domain. Ooh. But knowing how intense the Gershwin estate is about their rights, possibly not. It was written for a musical called OK, and it's O, K-A-Y, exclamation point. <laughs> Should be noted. And it's a standard. It's been recorded over 1,800 times. Uh, including several times by and on the very first album of noted Joe Raposo, Stan Frank Sinatra. Excellent. Yeah. And of interest to those who are playing the Muppeturgy trivia game at home, it was introduced in OK uh, in the original production by Gertrude Lawrence. And if, if that's ringing a recent bell, she came up in our discussion of the Gilda Radner episode because the song Body and Soul was written for her. It also featured prominently on the the 2002 uh AP Music Theory exam on which I got a five. Of course you did. (laughs) (laughs) I got very excited because I got to the analysis section and it was this song and I was like, oh my God, yes, I can do this. Oh, well done. Yeah, it was one of the happiest moments of my senior year of high school. (laughs) I was disappointed that Robin chose to change the pronouns in the song. I think that was a wimp move. 
<laughs> Especially for a relatively androgynous frog named Robin. Like, Who's Robin five years have, old. I mean, does Robin have a gender? I guess he's saying, you know, I'm five. I'm a big boy now. I'm five, right? Yeah. Yeah. And he's Kermit's nephew. Oh, I guess there is that. That's so interesting. The The recording of this that I happen to own is from a really weird 90s uh, album called The Glory of Gershwin. I have that album. Of course you do. Uh, on which Elton John sings it and also uses these pronouns. Okay. And I just assumed they were the original pronouns and he didn't bother changing them. But now it's just weird. This ooked me out, not for pronoun reasons, but in the same way that like, you know, when you see a child wearing like a miniature, like Metallica shirt and you're like, you don't like Metallica. Like <laughs> you don't like women. <laughs> Yeah, five-year-old robin yeah you don't feel a yearning anyway like yeah what makes it a little ookier is that he's is not that it's a love song it's someone to watch over me which already in itself is a little oogie yeah i mean especially if it's being sung by a child about what he thinks romantic love is <laughs> what he thinks romantic love is is finding a mommy <laughs> Also, I love this song, and I love when Robin sings, and I love this rendition of it. Even if it is, if it feels a little bit off, I still think it's lovely. Yeah, no, I, I was, you know, pleased to see it. I just, you know, was slightly uneasy. Also, there is a shot in which we get a clear view of Rolf's sheet music, and it's definitely not for this. Oh, I tried to get a look, and it went by too quickly. Yeah. To be fair, he's also not like staring at it like he usually does. The thing we talked about a couple weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, he knows this one. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So. <laughs> so maybe he didn't even need this sheet music. This was from the last number. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. There was something that was, I don't know if it was a different puppet or just something weird about the angle, but in, in the wide shots, it looks like Robin has different eyes with tinier pupils. I was more weirded out by that than about the content of the song. I think that was maybe part of the like ongoing weird color correction problems in the Disney Plus version of the Muppet Show. Hmm. Is also in the close-up shots, Robin's right foot looks super weird, almost like his leg is. I mean, his leg is definitely connected to the piano, but like rather than have his regular felt flipper, like they just painted a flipper on the piano. I don't that's think what that's, it looks like, or that's what you think? That's what it looks like. I don't think yeah. that's what they actually did. I think it's just like the color correction is so off that it it dulls the color and flattens it in a weird way. Like everything has a, a little lens of color correction over it, and it yeah. messes up. Okay. Yeah, well, that, that was more unsettling to me than Robin wants to fall in love with somebody who will be his mommy. <laughs> uh, anyway, I don't like Robin as a torch singer. I think that this is one step a little too far away from the like sweet innocence that I think they were probably going for. I thought it was cute and I'm dead inside. So (laughs) (laughs) I also thought it was cute. And I did wonder if you had just wished this into existence, David, or what's the opposite of wishing it into existence? Cursed. Yeah. Cursed us to experience it. Is your hearing aid fixed? No. Then how do you know what I'm saying? I don't. Oh. Well, the good news is, I think we can all agree that our next number is an 
absolute delight. Oh, oh, I near a female It was really hard to better. clip. It has such a great build. Yeah. It's like finding 30 seconds of that was really hard. Well done. So I don't think we have to say a whole lot about the song. This is Do Re Mi from The Sound of Music. It's a Rodgers and Hammerstein song, 1959. Uh, it's number 88 on that AFI 100 Years 100 Songs list that we mentioned in our discussion of Over the Rainbow, which is number one on that same list. And uh, I learned uh, in reading about it this week that in the extended part of the song, once Maria starts as- assigning bits to the children um that that part w- was actually written by richard rogers's longtime arranger trudy ritman they sort of devised it in rehearsal so i thought that was kind of cool hmm. yeah did she also write law a note to follow so the absolute laziest lyric in the history of the world <laughs> <laughs> i also well i read a thing i think it was douglas adams wrote that uh, his theory was that uh that Hammerstein wrote that and was like, I'm, I'm going to come up with something and I'm going to go back and fix it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then just forgot. Uh. Fozzie, a name I call myself, was my second biggest laugh of this episode. Yeah. It was so great. There's just a perfectly timed pause right before he says it. Love a good pause. Yeah. I just wonder how Fozzie still has musical number privileges after the whole rhyming song fiasco. <laughs> Well, Cover wasn't there, so. Yeah, and yet he's here for this one, but it's even more chaotic. Or at least similarly chaotic. What I love about this is, like, the gentle fun that they're poking at Kermit. Mm-hmm. Like, no one's really a dick in this, including Kermit. Like, he's exasperated. But, like, it, it, it starts it starts with, with what seems to be a genuine accident. And then the more exasperated that Kermit gets, the more that they're just like, oh, fuck this. We're just going to make fun of you. <laughs> and <laughs> I mean, everybody, yeah. except for Kermit, seems to be having a genuinely good time. And there's, like, something just really joyful about it in the way that sometimes these sketches actually feel kind of mean. And this one doesn't at all to me. Yeah, anyway. they are neither playing a prank, nor are they that dumb. They're just having fun. Yeah. 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 It's also not, it's not planned either. Yeah. Good point. Quick shout out to me and my shadow, which, which is the thing that uh, <laughs> poor card uh, inserts in there, uh, which is from 1927. Uh, it's officially credited to Billy Rose, Dave Dreyer and Al Jolson, but Al Jolson had no part in writing it. He just was <laughs> the Beyonce of his time in that he would like <laughs> be in the room and, you know, get writing credit for the halibut. And speaking of Beauregard, this is his first appearance, I believe. Yeah, and we're kind of expected to know who he is. When Kermit says, no, that would be Bo, we've never heard his name before at this point in The Muppet Show. Yeah, but then it sets up the Bo a beer, a female beer, so like, I don't know how much it matters. Yeah, but I don't know how much I would have laughed at that particular joke if I didn't already know that his name was Bo. True, true. It's still a great number. And I like that his voice just sounds like his voice immediately. Just like, that's what that puppet sounds like. Yeah. Got nailed in one. 
<laughs> which is the voice of Wendell Porcupine from Emma Otter. Oh, yeah. And uh, who's that green asshole with the leopard print in the back? <laughs> My notes, exactly. Who the fuck is this guy? That's what I wrote down. It's more of that one Steve Whitmire voice. Yep. Uh, the wiki says he is a salamander, which I think is because later he's going to be repurposed as uh, someone named Professor Salamander. Or Dr. Salamander. Dr. Salamander. I, yeah, I don't know who that is. Uh, I guess it, we'll find out in season five. And following the same logic as Bo, I guess his name is Ray. <laughs> But, yeah, I don't like him. I find him real unsettling. It's just weird that, and, like, maybe it's less weird if we assume that we don't know who Bo is yet, and then it's not just, like, it's all of our familiar Muppets and then some random asshole. But it is a bunch of familiar familiar assholes. (laughs) 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 And he's got, like, this random Muppets and then these random alligator Muppets. He's got this... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like gross ratty hair and he's wearing leopard print and he has these little like round sunglasses that are two different colors like uh such a weird shape too like yeah oh, it's just, everything about him he's just he's just like emanating sleaze which is not the vibe for the rest of this number so i, don't I mean know i do think i think they needed someone named ray and someone named Bo, and those characters don't exist and then Bo stuck around because He's fun, and this dude did not, because he's creepy as fuck. That's my theory, anyway. I'm going to want you to clip the part where you say Bo stuck around because he's fun, and after we sit through the rest of this season, I want you to revisit that statement. (laughs) Okay, that's fair. But he's he's at least okay to look at. Questionably. Presumably Salamander asshole went off and got a PhD. Uh. (laughs) Yeah, what's Bo done with himself? Yeah, I think Dr. Dr. Salamander is has like a different wig and is a different it's a combination of two different yeah it's it's the same body got yeah, a facelift the... changed his hair reinvented himself it's admirable <sighs> well speaking of creepy <laughs> here we go let's go to creep town when a man came to our house our house our house a man came to our house to sell us some rooms so we asked him to come in and we hit him with a hammer and we hit him in the closet in my father's room but you're always welcome in our house any time of the day yes you're always welcome in our house and we hope you will stay is this the darkest thing that has appeared on the Muppet Show thus far? Yes. Yeah. Unquestionably. Yeah. All right. We let's get into this. Um, so, so this is a song called "You're Always Welcome at, at Our House." It's a Shel Silverstein song. I'm not mad at him for writing this one because this is very much in his voice, <laughs> mm-hmm. and it's from 1962, and it appeared on an album uh, of his. But like, it, this is really the most notable appearance of this song and probably because it's real disturbing. (laughs) Um, It's just a song straight up about murder. Yep. It's less murdery in the Muppet rendition because we see the people alive singing along and bopping along in their little places that their bodies have been stashed. So they've only been kidnapped. Well, I mean, she opens up the the freezer and the oven to show where they're keeping the 
the singing cadavers. Like they're Muppets and they're singing and it's all dark, but also playful. But it's only because they're Muppets that this it's This is fun. one of my problems with this number is that dramaturgically, these people should all be dead. I mean, they are. Not they're singing sing corpses. Along. Are they're they? singing corpse Muppets. Okay. You don't look not, I, you know, that's, That is not an accurate reading of what we're seeing on our screen. Okay. Well, after we gave the lady poison lemonade and put her in the freezer, what do you think happened to her? I'm just saying that that is not what a singing corpse looked like. We know this because we've seen singing corpses most recently in Muppets on Dimension. Why do you have to remind me of Muppets on Dimension? I mean, most recently in the Alice Cooper episode. (laughs) (laughs) Singing ghosts are fun. Singing corpses in Muppets on Dimension, less so. No, but there's a singing skeleton in the Alice Cooper episode. No, that's true. And that's fun. There's an extra layer of creepy on this because Marisa Berenson is dressed like a small child. She's got like pigtails with little pig bows and she's got like a frilly dress and like knee high stockings. Knee high stockings that she leans over to seductively pull up her leg. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. There's this chilling close up when, when she says, a lady came to find out why why I was not at school and she like pulls the stocking up and just kind of like, you know, shoots fuck me eyes at the camera. And uh-huh. I- <laughs> Those are some come hither eyes when she's telling you exactly why she's not in school. Oh, oh I have questions. And she's questions. doing that voice. And this, uh, the hair and makeup just, it does not have the desired effect here. Like, I think she looks terrifying. She looked more or less terrifying during the, the following close-up when they've painted out her teeth to make it look like she's got pointy teeth. It's everything about it. I I don't understand why, if this were a UK spot, because it is very British in its sensibility, I think, with a Muppet, with like a, a Mary Louise type little girl Muppet in the lead, I would have liked it so much better because that's the point is that it's a small child singing and not a grown woman playing a small child. And I don't know. I don't know why they put the guest star in this. I hate it. If it was, yeah, if it was a little girl Muppet and it was still all the same singing corpses or just singing very, everything people, it wouldn't, it wouldn't freak you out. I would still have the same dramaturgical problem. being that they should all be dead but like i still i would it would not be creepy in the way that she's creepy like the song is meant to be creepy marisa berenson is creepy in this for totally different reasons mm-hmm. her whole getup is a little reminiscent of the, the little girls in the shining which i had to look up what, what year the shining came out and it actually came out after this so mm. yeah it's just a very little girlish little girl look there's a lot happening there. There's a lot. I'm, <laughs> I'm still trying to formulate my thoughts on what this is. It's creepy as alligator. I, I want to introduce to you the amazing Lou Zealand and his boomerang fish. So that came back. Uh, so we can talk about the music. Uh, uh, it, it's a, a song uh, called Fine and Dandy from a musical from 1930 uh, with music by Kay Swift and lyrics by Paul James. And uh, Fine and Dandy is the first Broadway musical, first successful Broadway musical to feature a complete score by a, f- a female composer. So that's cool. 
Yeah. Yeah. And Kay Swift's one of those people who should be more famous than she is. She apparently had an affair with George Gershwin. Good for her. George Gershwin can get it. Um, (laughs) Her granddaughter, who is like a famous novelist, also wrote a book all about like this affair and uh, like apparently it was like very dramatic and salacious and went on for 10 years and Kay's marriage broke up over it and everyone thought that she and George Gershwin were going to get married, but George Gershwin's mother was opposed to it because Kay Swift wasn't Jewish. It was like a whole thing. Good heavens. Wow. I need to read this book. And then George Gershwin died. Uh. (laughs) Well, and and then Kay Swift is along with our Gershwin. They were the two people who really ensured that after George Gershwin's death, the remainder of his music that he left behind that he hadn't completed was prepared in a way that it could be released into the world. Most notably the song love is here to stay, but even like into the like eighties and nineties towards the end of her life, she was still involved in like the preservation efforts around Gershwin's music. Like I remember when they did the big restoration of the score of strike up the band, there was one number where like all the music had been lost and she was able to reconstruct the melody from her memory and then uh, work with, I think Burton lane to like write new music for the verses that they couldn't remember. And I don't know. I, I find her to be like a fascinating character and finding Andy, you know, the name of the song as well as the name of the musical is a song that has popped up a lot. Like, it's been recorded a bunch of times. Barbara Streisand did it at one point. Uh, and after K-Swift died, uh, the same people actually who put together that restored Gershwin album uh, restored the score of Fine and Dandy and recorded it. And there's like a great, very like, you know, full orchestra, full of Broadway stars recording of it. If anyone's curious and wants to hear what like the first big hit musical written by a woman sounds like, you can just dial it up on Spotify now. That's awesome. Never mind that jazz. Listen, Turkey. What? And get out of show business? So just a tiny bit of show business this week. It's a big week for Jerry Nelson. It's the debut of Louis Kazagger hosting his recurring Muppet Sports segment. And this week, he's covering wig racing. Well, I call this wig greased lightning. Because it's speedy. No, because it's greasy. Don't you use a shampoo? I uh, know, sir. I do not use shampoo for my wigs. Only use real poo. <laughs> Nothing but the best poo for my wigs. Uh-huh. That whistle means that the wigs are on the blocks. Would you care to explain the wig block joke, Adam? This is my favorite joke of the week. So, so the the little foam heads that wigs are kept on are in fact called wig blocks. And, uh, you know, racers start on racing blocks and but they are in fact wig blocks like set on a track and it just (laughs) such a good stupid like joke you have to get to get and i loved it and the image of the wigs like sitting on the blocks and then like however they're just like being pulled by a string off of them to start racing leap off and then just start scurrying across the racetrack i loved it so much it's great and then lewis kazagger's wig joins them (laughs) and he finishes a sketch hairless 
and just because we do keep talking about it every week, like Grease Lightning, it, it Grease was very prevalent in 1978. Understandably, yeah, it was the word. It was the word. All the spectators for the wig race are dogs for some reason. Yeah. I, is this supposed to be reminiscent of specifically dog racing or do they just have a lot of dog puppets and think that would be a funny connection if anybody watches this episode three times and notices oh, I don't know. That? I like that. I don't know. I love everything about this. <laughs> Made me so happy. Yeah, it's a good time. Who do you think we're going to be more annoyed by by the end of the season? Beauregard or Louis Kazagger? Beauregard. Louis Kazagger. My money's on Louis Kazagger. But I also like, I understand that Louis Kazagger is a very specific reference to a real person who at the time, like, would have made sense. Who's the real person? Howard Cosell. Oh, I see. I know I a just, sports thing. I mean, I've heard they of, clap. <laughs> I've heard of Howard Cosell. I will that, clap that's for you. That's thing, because like, Howard Cosell was still omnipresent enough when Adam yeah. and I were little that like, I very much recognize the reference, you know, and while not just to Howard Cosell, but to wide worlds of sports. Uh, even though I'm sure I never actually watched wide worlds of sports or like chose to pay attention to Howard Cosell. Yeah. But I can't name a sportscaster now. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Yeah. I mean that I could name a little bit of sportscasters now, but like, I'm aware of Wide World of Sports and Howard Cosell and still Louis Kazagger introducing the Wide World of Muppet Sports. That means nothing to me. And I guess that explains why I'm a little bit mildly annoyed when I hear I'm Louis Kazagger and you can hear that there's something in his voice that's like, this is a joke. You're going to laugh when you hear that my name is Louis Kazagger. And that already annoys me a little bit. But I don't get the name. Yeah. I don't understand what the name is referencing. But I, it's just like, supposed to sound a tiny bit like Howard Cosell enough to make you think Wide World of Sports. That I couldn't tell you. I know the, the, vo- oh. the voice is a, is a reference. I don't know if the name is supposed to be doing anything. Well, it's a sports ball mystery. Maybe we'll find out someday. Yep. The sports ball connection. Let's just hear as we close the episode, Kermit trying to hide with Statler and Waldorf in their box and being thrown out. Hey, if you guys let me hide here, I'll give you tickets to next week's show. There he goes, and we're out. Thanks for listening to this episode of Muppeturgy. Tune in next week to hear our discussion of the Raquel Welch episode of The Muppet Show. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Muppeturgy or on the web at Muppeturgy.com. If you like what we're doing, please spread the word with a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. Our theme music was composed and performed by Christy Bauer. Our show logo was created by Todd Brian Backus. And this episode was edited by me, David Levy. All right, I just listened to a little bit of it. It's like a... Anyway, yeah, it is a bop. <laughs>